but we're in the middle of a very uh, large section that, uh, if you're there at Hebrews chapter 3, starts at uh, 3 verse 7 and uh, really goes through chapter 4 verse 12. This is the second uh, major warning in the book of Hebrews. Uh, you remember I shared with you in our introduction to the book that there are five warnings that run through this book, all relate to the Word of God, and all sort of intensify as you go through the book. The first warning was there in chapter 2 about the danger of neglecting God's Word and, and beginning as a result to drift from God. And of course, if you neglect God's Word, drift, you're going to come to this second warning where you're going to find yourself struggling with a heart of unbelief that often can lead to disobedience and God's discipline and God's chastisement. And you remember in this section, it's really built around uh, the historical example of the children of Israel when they came to Kadesh uh, Barnea. I think most of you are familiar enough with uh, your Old Testament history to know that God had miraculously delivered His people from slavery in Egypt uh, and His intention once they knew his redemptive power was to take them into the, what, promised land, into Canaan, that land flowing with uh, milk and honey. And so uh, God showed them his redemptive power. He had provided miraculously for them, guided them. And then when they got to the very edge of the promised land at Kadesh Barnea, remember they sent the spies out, uh, 12 spies, one for each tribe. The spies came back, 10 of the spies uh, gave what? Uh, well, they said it's everything God said it would be, even more than we could ever imagine. But there are giants in the land, and there are mighty soldiers, and they'll just squash us like you would a grasshopper under your foot. And, of course, it was Joshua and Caleb who said, hey, God is with us. Uh, nothing is impossible with God. We need to go forward in obedience to God. But the people what? They, they halted. Uh, they fell into anxiety that we're going to talk about tonight. They fell into worry. They fell into fear. And they refused to obey God because they uh, refused to believe Him and to put their reliance in Him. And there were consequences for that decision. And God said because of their failure to trust Him, because of their failure to obey them, He said that they would not enter His what? rest. They would not enter his rest. And for them, that rest was the promised land. And you remember, he pronounced that discipline on them that uh, for all those that were uh, in the adult generation, they would never step foot in the promised land. And as a result, they wandered 40 years in the wilderness. Yes, knowing God's provision, knowing God's care, but missing out on the blessing God had intended for them. You know, just a... uh, a sister passage that, that helps us to review even further. Turn to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9. Now, we'll go right back to Hebrews uh, 3 and 4. But this is a good uh, cross-reference. Uh, let me begin at uh, 1 Corinthians 9. Let me begin at verse 24. And then in chapter 10, we get this uh, example of the children of Israel. Uh, He says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Of course, often in the Bible, uh, racing is used as a metaphor for the Christian life. And so Paul is saying, as Christians, we're in a race, and we need to run that race to win that race. And of course, winning the race here would be to be pleasing to God. 
uh, to remain faithful to Him as you know His uh, grace. And then he goes on, and everyone who competes in the games, what? Exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, he says, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I buffet my body and make it my slave. Lest possibly I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. So again, Christian life is a race. We're to run to win, to please the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we're going to do that, we have to what? Exercise self-control as we maintain our focus and our trust and our confidence in Him. And then chapter 10, for I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And the rock was Christ. Let me pause right there. I would encourage you to circle the word all. Notice, it's found twice in verse 1. Once in verse 2. Once in verse 3. Once in verse 4. They were all under the cloud as they came out of Egypt. They were all passed through the sea, the Red Sea, as God delivered them from Pharaoh's army. They were all baptized in, into Moses. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all ate the same spiritual drink. But then notice verse 5. Nevertheless, with, circle this next phrase, with what? Most of them. See, they all began the race, but with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, these things happen as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they did also crave. And do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorality as some of, uh, act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example uh, that... Uh, they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Simple thing I want to point out to you. Notice, this was a redeemed people. They all began the race. But with most of them, God was not well pleased because they did not maintain their focus and their commitment and their dedication to God. And they fell into unbelief and disobedience, as we've seen in Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4. And as a result, they forfeited the blessing God intended for them. Now, the lesson for us is what? We're in danger of the same thing as believers that have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb that we sang about earlier. We need to be careful that we do not develop an unbelieving heart that would shrink away in unbelief due to worry or anxiety or fear or life circumstances and not put our trust and our reliance and obedience in God. And the warning is, if we follow their example, we will lose the rest that God has promised us. Now, go back to Hebrews. Let's read these verses. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, uh, verse, uh, verse 1 all the way through verse uh, 12. And then we'll uh, look at these today. And it's precious, precious truth. It says, Therefore... Hebrews 4, verse 1, Therefore, let us fear, lest while a promise remains of entering His rest, any of you should seem to have come short of it. For indeed, 
We have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them. Why? Because it was not united by faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed or trust enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has thus said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. There's this emphasis on that, the fact that it is God's rest. Verse 6, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David after So long a time, just as has been said before, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, as the children of Israel did at Kadesh Barmia. Verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. Therefore, There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Verse 13, And there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him to whom we have to do. I hope you picked up a copy of your uh, sermon notes. Uh, The early part, there's uh, some technical definitions which are very, very important here. And you'll notice there uh, defining key terms. And there's two key terms that we want to define that will really help us get a a handle on this portion of Scripture. And the first one is the word rest. Uh, What does God mean when He talks about His rest and the fact that we can enter that rest? And then the word faith. What does faith, trust, belief mean in this section? And so let's look at rest first. You'll notice there in your notes the word occurs nine times in the first 13 verses of chapter 4. Now there are three Hebrews words, as you see there, that are used to convey the idea of rest in the Old Testament. There's the word sabbat, which implies reaching the end of an activity followed by peacefulness. And we've all experienced that where you've given yourself some task, it's finally completed, and you can just lay back and, what, chill out, that peacefulness. And then there's nuah, which indicates security and a sense of inner peace, that I'm secure and that on the inside there's no turmoil, but I am at peace. And then sequat conveys the idea of finding, again, inner tranquility. Now, the Greek word in the New Testament for rest, as we continue in your notes there, is a compound word composed of kata and pauses. It means to cease. It means to stop striving. In Hebrews 4, it refers to something that can be entered. He often talks about we enter that rest, like a room or space. We could call it God's specially provided resting place. Now, folks, let me just pause right there. In this passage, God offers us a resting place. And folks, don't we need a resting place living in this world? In this world that is filled with stress, that is filled with hurt and difficulty and perplexity and persecutions, and we could just go on and on, that that weigh us down. 
God is saying there's a place where you can find rest, even in the midst of the storms of this life. Now, look at the next point in your notes. A very important observation is that in Hebrews 4, it is called God's rest. Over and over again, he emphasizes, my rest, my rest. The rest offered is not only provided by God. Now, this is amazing. It is, in fact, the same rest God himself experiences. What an amazing reality. He's not only offering us rest, but he's offering us the same rest that he experiences. Now, what is the rest God enjoys? And this next statement is is extremely important to our entire study. The answer, I believe, is found in Hebrews 4, 3 and 4, in two phrases. The first phrase, the works, referring to God's works, were finished when? From the foundation of the world. Which is the reason we're told in verse 4 that God rested on the seventh day from all His works. So, it's going back to creation, the uh, seven days of creation. And it's saying that uh, God's works were finished, what? From the very beginning. And for that reason, He rested on the seventh day from all of His works. So, notice, God's work was not just to design the beginning of everything but also the end towards which history would move. Uh, This is why the Bible can tell us not only about the beginning of all things in Genesis, but also uh, the end of all things in Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible. God's work, here it is right here. God's work was to foresee every future event and work out ahead of time His solution to every problem. You know, in Revelations, it says Jesus was slain when? Before the foundation of the world. Before there was time, space, and history. Before He had created Adam and Eve. God, in His omniscience, was able to foresee the fall of man. And foreseeing that fall, He provided what? The solution. Jesus, who was slain before the foundation of the world. So again, God's work was to foresee every future event and work out ahead of time His solution to every problem. And with every problem solved, God was and is able to rest. God is at rest because He knows what will happen, and He's planned for every contingency. No matter what humans or demons do, history moves towards God's intended end. Amen? Now, let me pause right here and address an important issue. Now, there are many that would reject what I just said. They would say, they would reject that the end of history has been determined by God from the beginning because they believe this would negate man's free will, that this would make men nothing more than hapless pawns in the hands of God whose decisions are predetermined by God. But the fact, now listen very closely, but the fact that God knows the decisions we will make, that He can foresee using His omniscience those decisions we make, does not mean God forces or determines those decisions. Remember, God is outside and above time. He lives in the eternal present as the great I am. You and I, on the other hand, are locked into the flow of time. We can remember the past, we live in the present, but the future is what? Unknown to you and I. For example, 
say you're in a uh, canoe on a, a winding river, and you, you have no idea what lies behind the next bend. You have no idea whether you're going to find a quiet pool, still waters, or, you, where you go, or whether or not you're going to find raging rapids that could uh, sink you and uh, put you under. But you have a friend on a very high hill who can see the entire river. He can see what is behind the next bend because while they're future to you, they're what? Present to him. So he calls your cell phone and he warns you, you better come ashore here. There are rapids ahead. Now, you have a choice. You can ignore that warning or you can heed that warning. But the point is, his knowledge of what is around the next bend did not determine your choice. You make the choice freely and the consequences are real to those choices that you make. Now, in the same way, God sees the rapids that lie ahead for His people, and He knows what will take us to safety. God speaks to us in His Word, by His Spirit, through other believers, etc., but we are the ones who choose, who make the decisions. We can receive His Word as good news and obey it, or we can receive it as bad news that the children of Israel did and disobey it. The fact that God knew what was ahead, or even that He knew the choices we would make, in no way determines what we do. Although it gave the all-knowing and all-powerful God before the foundation of the world the distinct advantage of being able to circumvent all satanic and human opposition in order to arrive at His determined end. Amen? Amen. Now, what is rest for the believer? Now, here's the application. Here's the application. The rest experienced when I turn from my worries and strivings to go into God's presence and place my reliance on my all-knowing, all-powerful Heavenly Father who has already worked out the solution of whatever problem, challenge, or need I'm facing. That's rest. That's what God is offering the believer in this passage. He says, I'm offering you the opportunity to turn from worry, to turn from human striving, to come into my presence and to place your reliance on me, the one who's already worked out every solution to every problem, every challenge, every need that you ever meet. In other words, God never panics. He only provides. Now, look at the second key word, faith. And this is very important for us to understand what faith is in this passage. Faith, because faith is the means by which we enter God's rest. It was due to Israel's disbelief and disobedience that they failed to enter. But it's through faith and obedience that we do enter. Therefore, let's try to understand the biblical concept of faith, which is much more than just intellectual assent, which we sort of tend to uh, view faith as in our day. There are, again, uh, three key Old Testament words for faith. Amon refers to certainty based on the reliability of what is believed. So I'm just, I'm certain because I know the one I'm trusting is reliable. But ta indicates trust in God or reliance on Him that brings a sense of well-being and security. So as I place my reliance, as I place my trust in God, 
it bears the fruit of a sense of well-being and security that I'm in God's care. And uh, God will not let me down, that He will accomplish His purposes for me. And then Mashah portrays human helplessness and the need to seek refuge in God. Now, in the New Testament, we find pistis, which is the noun pistule, which is the verb, which they both build on the Old Testament concept of faith. And one unique uh, use of faith in the New Testament is that it's often linked to the preposition in. We're to put our faith what? In Christ. In Christ. We're to believe in Christ. And this is something that's never done in secular Greek. The gra- grammatical construction pictures the believer believing into Christ. That is, fully committing himself to Christ. Therefore, look at the conclusion. Faith, in a biblical sense, is a commitment of oneself to God. It's much more than intellectual assent. Many people will say, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God and He died for my sins. But that's not biblical faith. That's part of it. There's that aspect of intellectual assent. But it must go, must go deeper than that to where the will is moved and where there's a decision on the part of the will to put their trust in God, to make that choice to commit to God that results in full reliance on Him and His Word. So, let's put all this together and then really move into that formula to enter God's rest. What is rest? It's God saying, Andy, believers, I'm asking you, enter my rest. I know you live in a world that's rough. I know you live in a world that's tough. I know where there's a lot of pain. I know you're dealing with a lot of stress. Uh, There are a lot of things that hit you and you don't have the answer for it. And I'm saying, turn from your worry, turn from your strivings, come to me. And as you come into my presence, relax, knowing that I've already worked out the solution to this problem. I already have the answer. I'm not caught by surprise. I'm not in the dark. And although you may not know what the future holds, I do, and I'm the one that's holding your hand. I'm the one that will lead you, and you can find rest even in the midst of the storm. But the way we enter that rest, it's very, very obvious, is what? Trust. The greater the trust, the greater the rest, right? It's very obvious to see. Now, look at the formula to enter God's rest. Okay, if that's what God is offering, how do I enter that rest? The first step, I have to receive God's good news. I have to receive God's good news. Look at uh, there, verse 2, very first part of verse 2. For indeed, we've had good news preached to us. Now, realize when it talks about good news being preached to us, it's not just talking about the message of salvation that brings a person to conversion. He's just talking about that, that the word gospel just means what? Good news. And so it has many, many applications. Uh, when we go back to the children of Israel, the good news they had preached to them was what? That God had given them the promised land. And God was asking them, will you believe me? Will you put my reliance on, on, on me? And will you obey me and enter the promised land, trusting that I'm going to give you the victory, trusting that I'll be on your side, and we'll be able to conquer all the enemies? 
But, of course, the children of Israel, they didn't receive it as good news. They received it as what? Bad news. And they let anxiety and fear get the best of them. They shrunk into unbelief, and they disobeyed God. And because they disobeyed God, God said, you'll never enter my rest because of your refusal to put your reliance on me. Because I can't, I can't give you anything unless you choose to trust me, unless you put your confidence in me. And then look at the second step, which is so... And let me go back to the first step. This goes back to the um, uh, good message uh, that we uh, looked at two weeks ago, where we talked about the way you avoid a hard heart of unbelief is, what, preparing your heart for God? Remember that, James chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, where you have to, what, open your ears to be attentive to God, shut your mouth so you can listen to God, calm your spirit so you can relax in God's presence. You have to weed your heart, surrender your will. In other words, I have to receive God's Word. I have to give it my attention, my affections, my allegiance. But then the next step, number two, is to mix it well with faith in God. To mix it well with faith in God. Notice the latter part of verse 2, it says, But the word they heard did not profit them. Why did it not profit them? Because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed, or we could say those who have trusted, those who place their faith, they do in arrest. So again, it's very, very important when God speaks, when God instructs us in His Word, that we unite that Word with faith, with trust, with confidence, with reliance on God. And if we don't, it means absolutely nothing. Because you cannot separate God from His Word. When we read God's Word, we're coming face to face with God. And as we saw in a previous message, when we refuse to trust God, Whether we realize it or not, what we're saying right into the face of God is, you know, God, either I don't believe what you just told me, or, yeah, it sounds good, I just don't think you can pull it off. And there's nothing that maligns God's character and His integrity more than that. That's why God takes this matter so seriously. This is why God disciplined them with those 40 years in the wilderness Because they refused to trust. They maligned his character before a lost world. And we need to be careful as believers. We do not fall into the same fate. And then three, enter God's rest. Verse 10 says, For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did his. And then look at those remaining points on specifically how to enter God's rest. Accept the test as being from God and trust that God has already provided the solution. I mean, make this very, very personal. What test are you going through right now? What difficulty are you facing? What adversity? I mean, it may be physical, it may be financial, it may be relational. I mean, it could be a million and one different things. But if you're living on planet Earth... I know you're confronted with adversity and tribulation and difficulty. So apply this to your life. So you're in a test right now. You're you're dealing with some difficulty, some struggle. Well, first thing, accept it as being from God. And that God's going to use this for your good. And trust that God has already provided the solution. Therefore, there's no need to worry. There's no need to become anxious. 
because I know God has the solution. And then the next thing, turn from anxiety and surrender to what God wants. Turn from anxiety and surrender to what God wants. Let me share with you how I pray often when um, I hit a time of great adversity or stress. Uh, I often say, you know, God, if it's within the realm of your plan for my life, you know, I pray that you'll let this cup pass from me. But, Lord, bottom line, nevertheless, my, my will, but yours be done. And if you're going to have me live with this or through this, then I trust you're going to give me the grace. And that you already have the answer for me. So, how do you enter God's rest? The first thing I have to do is whatever trial that I'm in, whatever test, whatever, accept it as from God. A God who loves me, who won't allow anything to touch me unless He knows He can cause it to work for my good, Romans 8, 28. And then I have to trust God that He's already provided the solution. And then believing that. See, if I truly believe that, if I truly am putting my trust in God, what's going to be the next step? I am going to turn from my anxiety. I'm going to stop focusing on the circumstances. I'm going to begin focusing on what? God. Because He has the answer. I'm going to begin to get very attentive, putting my affections on God, my allegiance toward God, because I know He's the great I am. In Him's going to be found the solution, the answer. And then look at the third step. Obey God's Word today. Haven't we seen that word emphasized throughout chapters 3 and 4? Today. Today. Today, if you hear God's voice. Do not harden your heart. Uh, Verse 11, let us therefore be diligent to enter the rest, lest anyone fail through following, uh, following the same example of disobedience. So again, I accept that this is from God. I trust that God already has a solution. I turn from my anxiety to surrender to God, and then I obey God. To the best of my ability, I do what God, I believe God is telling me to do. Believing as I'm totally yielded to Him, that He will lead, He will guide. Even if I get it a little wrong and off track, He has the ability to steer me back on track because my focus is on Him. My attention is His. My affections are His. My allegiance is His. And then, look at that last thing, and this is the good part. Look for divine surprises to replace human striving. I guarantee God has surprised you with incredible blessings in the midst of the storm in the midst of the difficulty that you would have never expected and to be honest that you would have never had experienced if you had failed to put your trust in God. Let me just close with just a biblical illustration that I think sort of captures all four of those uh, last points about how to enter God's rest. And I, I want to stay with the children of Israel. God did not permit them to go into the promised land. They wandered 40 years in the wilderness. That generation died out, and God says, okay, now you can go. And, of course, you know, Joshua led them. And when they went into the promised land, do you remember the first obstacle that was in their way? Does anybody? Huh? Jericho. That's exactly right. Jericho. 
And Jericho was not just any obstacle. Uh, We know that it was the greatest military fortress in all of Canaan. Uh, Joshua understood uh, as the great military man that he was, because remember, under Moses' leadership, Joshua was the commander-in-chief. He led their military armies into battle as Moses would pray. So Joshua understood that if we're going to get Canaan, if we're going to get the promised land, then we're going to have to get the victory over Jericho. And so the, the Bible tells us, for sake of time, we want, you might want to just read on your own the end of uh, chapter 5, end of chapter 6 of Joshua. But it tells us that Joshua gets off by himself. And he's on top of one of the hills that overlooked the valley in which Jericho was situated. Jericho was situated in the middle of a huge valley. And apparently he, he was doing what any military strategist would do. He, he's looking at the enemy. He knows he's about to go into battle. He's trying to figure out what's the best way for me to deploy my forces and, and to get the victory. And, uh, and we know what he would have been looking at would have been staggering. Um, Jericho was situated in the middle of a huge valley, so there was no chance of a sneak attack. They would see you coming from any direction. You know about those huge walls? We know from archaeological studies that have been done, there actually was an outer and an inner wall. Uh, Each wall was about 30 feet high, 12 to 15 feet thick, a moat area between the two walls. So by some miracle, if you made a breach in the outer wall, you would be trapped in that moat area, not to speak of the mighty, valiant soldiers that lived in that city that were going to resist attack. And not only that, they literally built the city of Jericho up on a 50-foot mound of dirt, of earth. And pretty difficult to get a battering ram going up any, with any momentum up a 50-foot uh, mound uh, to make a breach in a wall that was 12 to 15 feet thick. And that's why in bi- biblical days, Jericho was considered invincible. And so Joshua's looking at this. Now, we, I think we, can, we know human frailty in human beings. He must have been struggling a little bit at that point, saying, how in the world? And I'm sure he was struggling with some anxiety, some worry. You know, do we have the resources? Can we get the job done? Now, let let me just pause right here because we want this to be personal. What's your Jericho right now? What's that overwhelming adversity or problem that you're you're encountering? Well, as Joshua's got his focus on Jericho trying to figure out, all of a sudden the Bible tells us he notices that he's not alone. The Bible says he turns and he sees a man with his sword drawn. Now, he does not realize who this is. We know because we've read the story. This is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ himself. Making a physical manifestation to Joshua at the outset of his ministry. But all Joshua sees is a soldier. He does not know if he's friend or foe. He has his sword drawn. So Joshua does what you would think a soldier would do that's out behind enemy lines. He goes for his sword and he asks the question, are you for us or are you against us? And then came the reply that he wasn't ready for. 
the more literal rendering is, is this. Joshua says, are you for us or are you against us? With the thought, if you're against us, one of us is going to drop on this spot as we engage in some sword play. But if you're a friend, well, let's join our hearts and try to figure out how to get the victory down there. And then the reply came back, neither. That's how it literally reads. Are you for us or against us? Neither. But as captain of the Lord's host, I am his come, not to take sides, but to take over, to take over. The moment Joshua heard those words, he put his face to the ground. Jericho meant nothing at this moment. There's only one issue. And it says, as he fell down, he worshipped the Lord by saying, What saith my Lord to his servant? And then the Lord Jesus Christ says, Joshua, take off your shoes, boy, because you are on holy ground. And chapter 5 ends by saying, and Joshua did so. And it's very unfortunate that there's a chapter break there because it's in that encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ that he gives him the battle plan for Jericho that no human being could have ever thought up with the wildest imagination. Matter of fact, let's be very honest. To a military man of Joshua's stature, the battle plan probably seemed pretty ridiculous. I mean, march around the city. And then on the, you know, six days in on the seventh day, march seven times around the city. And then toot our little horns and shout. But God said, Joshua, if you trust me, if you obey me, those walls are going to come tumbling down. And I will give you this city. Now, folks, I share that story because isn't it a beautiful example of how to find rest? See, I I find it interesting that before he was aware of God's presence, his whole focus, Joshua's whole focus was what? Jericho. Just like with you and I. Our focus is nothing but on the problem, on the adversity. What might happen? What might not happen? Woe is me. I'm scared. You know, it's just, and the more we focus on the problem, what happens? It gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And as the problem gets bigger, God gets what? Smaller, smaller, smaller. And like the children of Israel, then we're in danger of falling into unbelief, not putting our reliance and our confidence in God, and then even disobeying Him. But I find it fascinating when Jesus manifests Himself, and don't miss this. To me, this is the, the heart of the whole story, especially as it relates to rest. Where is Christ's focus? It's not on Jericho. Why? Don't miss this. Why? Because he already had the solution. He already had the answer before the foundation of the world. 
in his omniscience, he foresaw this moment when Joshua would be on this hill, when the children of Israel would have crossed Jordan into the promised land to confront Jericho. And in foreseeing that, he already developed the plan that would give them the victory. So Jericho was no concern to him. He already had the plan. The only issue, the only issue was what? Would Joshua turn away from his circumstances, put his focus on a great God, believing that God had the answer? Believing that he could trust God. And so that's why Christ's focus was on Joshua. Would Joshua, would the children of Israel get themselves in such a position of surrender and dependence upon God that they would know God's answer? Do you hear? But the point is, and don't miss this in Hebrews, the choice is real. Thank God, Joshua chose to put his trust in God. He did fall in his face, realizing Jericho's not the issue. It's just what saith my Lord to his servant. You're the one that has the answer. Now, sadly, the generation before Joshua, they had a choice, and they refused to put their confidence and trust in God. They shrunk back in anxiety and fear and unbelief that led to their disobedience. And they never experienced the blessing God intended. And the tragedy in our day, the great, great tragedy, is there are countless numbers of believers that never get out of the wilderness on planet earth. And they never get out of the wilderness on planet earth because of their refusal to put their trust in God. And to trust Him and obey Him. And so, there's a great challenge in this message. That's that's why he says, you know, fear lest you fail to enter this rest that's being offered to you. But God's offering the rest. The question now is, will we trust? Will we obey? Father, thank you for uh, what is such comforting truth. I can't even think of any greater good news for a believer than what we've discussed here today. But at the same time, Lord, with great privilege comes responsibility. And Father, we realize that we are also in danger, like the children of Israel, shrinking back in unbelief and missing the intended blessings you had for us all along, missing your answers, missing your solutions. And just staying eaten up in worry and anxiety. So, Lord, forgive us for our missed trust. Forgive us for maligning your character as we refuse to trust. And so, Lord, we look to you to give us grace. uh, That you would turn our eyes from our circumstances to just how great our God is. And that we would not seize the size of the problem, but the size of our God. And that we would put our trust in a God who has already determined the solution, already determined the answer. And that as we trust you, we'll have those wonderful divine surprises where you take uh, what we view as impossibilities and they just become opportunities for you to show yourself, uh, to build our faith, uh, 
and to even take us into greater depths of your rest. So, Lord, we trust you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.